now companies have to think about responsibility with the data. How should they share it? How should they use it? How long do they retain it? Because there hasn't been this thought for, for so long. They've just been at the buffet bar piling on their plates and now they're overweight and have to get back into shape. And welcome to another episode of Tech Policy Grind. This is Joseph Jerome, and this week, Pinal and I are joined by Patrick Kios, Government Information Specialist at the Department of Justice, and, I might add, President of this here Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Our wide-ranging conversation this week, recorded in the immediate wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, covers Patrick's work in finance and Maryland state politics, and how sharing a timely term paper was a really useful career stepping stone. As someone who's constantly befuddled by folks' unwillingness to share the things they write, uh, it's good to see someone getting some mileage out of their writing. We also talk a bit about the future of the Foundry and what's to come. Hope you enjoy the show. What I am grinding for is social stability. And I know that's kind of very broad, but I am from a rural community. Uh, My hometown had exactly 340 people. We didn't even have a stoplight. And so I grew up in a very remote part of the eastern shore of Maryland. And I had the very good benefit of going to school, uh, high school in D.C. So I got access Mm -hmm. to computers and Internet and everything that came with it. Uh, from early on, but I didn't get it in my home. I was stuck with dial-up modems, and um, at the time, dial-up was still long distance, so it was like $4 a minute to be on the Internet, and I'm not made of money. Uh, I'm a farmer, so Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did not get access to that. And right now, as we're talking about all the issues that we are currently facing with Cambridge Analytica data privacy, Um, and how platforms and enterprises are using what we do online. I think what's going understated is that a lot of people aren't digitally literate. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of people I know don't even have an email address, which really still uh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure to a lot of people listening to this will be like what that's a thing. Uh, But it is a real thing. And as everything moves to online platforms to digital means of transference, the people who don't know how to use it are basically lost out in the dark. Mm-hmm. So, but do, do they have smartphones? Um, they do, but a lot of them can't afford to have data access on it right, all the time. Right. So they rely on free internet, whether that be from mm-hmm. public libraries or McDonald's, and that is not always an option to them. Digital divide questions, I think, weigh on a lot of people in Silicon Valley and in D.C., particularly if you're in civil society. But everybody seems to just sort of be more government intervention here, more private initiatives there, philanthropy. Um, Um, At the end of the day, some people are still being left behind. What do you got? What's your magic bullet? So my magic bullet is to include digital literacy within the school curriculums because I think that will help people coming up and then uh, for people outside of education systems, I think instead of having unemployment or retirement, I think there should be 
more incentives, uh, tax incentives, what have you, to re-education programs, not just handing out um, certain stipends, because that way it forces people to engage and uh, learn the skills that they will need moving forward. Because despite what many people may think, we're, we're not moving back towards a manufacturing-based economy. So can I push you on that, though? Because sure. everybody needs to be retrained. I, as a lawyer, should probably understand more about coding. Everybody should – certainly, you know, if we want to talk about privacy or Cambridge Analytica, everybody should dive into Facebook settings at writ large. <laughs> but, you know, not – and this is, I think, what captures, like, what's really happening in our society right now. Not everybody wants to be a coder. Not everybody has mathematical skills. Um, what are you going to do for people who, A, don't have the inclination to, to, to restart a career or just don't have the aptitude? There are going to be some people who don't want to do it, uh, and you can remove some of the incentives that allow them um, to kind of sustain a non-digital life. Uh, and not everyone's going to be a coder, so you don't have to force that upon people. But providing incentives for them to learn whatever forms of digital literacy that they may want is a, a more worthwhile task than just letting them continue um, being in the dark. And I think that the solution is going to be very municipal-based and state-based because a federal solution is not applicable. Uh, and as, as we'll talk about later, like I worked in state and local politics, and I can tell you that there's an enormous difference between the two, and the difference between state and federal is even greater. Uh, and so there is no one broad solution. It's going to be very incremental, very localized, very tailored that is appropriate for that group. And it sounds like, Patrick, you're not saying that necessarily everyone needs to like learn how to code or go to a boot camp, but like you know, really teaching people how to be more independent and doing like basic transactions online, even that we all do every day, every minute on our phones and take for granted that other people wouldn't even know how to start that process. Exactly. And uh, I don't think we're going to train an entire generation of people who will be the next coders of the next platform. We need more broad-based tools. Like I am kind of sick of explaining two-factor authentication <laughs> to people uh, because it, it should be really common sense. Everyone has this, this tool available to them that would allow such greater level of security, but it's so, so limited in its usage that people just don't know. And that's the real issue. People don't know what's out there and what's available to them mm -hmm. and what right. they can do. Uh, and because they don't have this knowledge, they just kind of throw up their hands and say, well, it's it's beyond me. So I'll right. just kind of accept right. the status quo, which. Right. And not I everybody has grandchildren that they can that they're close to that they can, you know, learn from. Exactly. Uh, and that's how people like me become the go to in my <laughs> building. So uh, so what's your skill set? How do you go from middle of nowhere farm to Washington, D.C. talking tech policy. You guys don't want to bond about farms, Joe? No, no. I've put that in my past. I don't know about you, Patrick. 
so I still remain very engaged in my community. I am. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that moving away is the solution uh, okay. just because uh, I love where I grew up, uh, the eastern shore of mighty Maryland, as I like to call it. Uh, and what brought me to D.C. at first was high school. The schools in my region are not great. So I had the opportunity to go to school uh, in D.C. How long and- was that commute for you? Uh, it, it's about an hour and a half. Wow. So three uh, hours a day just to get to and from high school. Uh, sometimes, yes. Uh, my, my father's a small business owner in addition to be a farmer. And so he actually, his business has a house in DC where he operates, uh, out of. So we live there a few days a week, but continued operations on our family farm during mm-hmm. the weekends and the holidays. Wow. Um, and, and, and actually, so in high school, uh, I, my family lived there and in college, I actually, I stayed at my farm throughout, um, the, the summers by myself and operated my farm by myself, uh, and kind of oversaw things there. Why, my brother and sister and parents were in DC, which was pretty interesting uh, hmm. and led to some uh, situations. Which does, they, does wait, mean, you, does, it was literally you and the animals on this farm. Do you know how to so fix tractors? An, it, it was an <laughs> agricultural farm. Uh, all we had is corn and soybeans, which we sold off okay. to uh, Purdue as chicken feed. It's 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 not that extensive uh, and. I, I am not the, the greatest farmer, so we had assistance. Do you uh, have – I want to ask, so I, I have a couple of friends who work on farms and are interested increasingly in things like ag data, data portability, right-to-repair tractors. I don't know if that's anything that you gained any insight from during your summers on the farm, but – Oh, uh, I have a fair amount of interest in not only like agricultural data – uh, because as, as we talk and coming full circle to where, where we started of what can we do to modernize people's education? Like m- my grandfather was a farmer, his father was a farmer. And back in the turn of the century, it took 50 people to cultivate a farm. And it was about 18 bushels of corn per acre. Now it takes one person on a tractor to cultivate uh, about 52 bushels per acre. So uh, it's it's the technology that is moving us forward and you can't really stop it. You just kind of accept and learn how to use it better. Why law school? We still haven't even got to how you get right, into tech policy here. <laughs> this is the longest like getting to your journey ever, <laughs> but it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I stayed in my hometown because during high school and college, I worked for uh, my community bank and I rose up the ranks, started as a, a file clerk. And then my senior year of college, I worked for the bank president kind of as his right hand person. And he was grooming me to manage slash take over when he was set to retire um, and 
my senior year, we, we sat down, we had a lunch and I was like, I think I can be, I can move beyond this. And I think I would like to see what things are like uh, working on a different level. So not just like a community bank, but a national bank um, and really going deep into how the markets work and how finance works. I landed a job working in a very small investment bank, uh, boutique bank in Washington, D.C., uh, doing capital real estate financial analysis. Um, this was right after the economic downturn of 08, and I saw just a lot of the malfeasance in the market and how some people were operating. And I was like, uh, I, I like the work, but I don't think I would get a whole lot of satisfaction out of doing this as a career. And the money was good, but it wasn't good enough to keep me there. So I knew that I was going to get an advanced degree and I was on the fence, uh, MBA versus a uh, law degree. And my boss at the time, he sat me down and he said, an MBA, that's a dime a dozen, but a law degree is something you can actually use and something that distinguishes you from everyone else because it allows you to act in a way that other people can't who are not attorneys. And wow, I, I think that's going to be our pull quote there. I've never seen somebody so complimentary of attorneys. Right. <laughs> well, he's an attorney too. Uh, so, you know, there, it was a little self-serving, but he, he's absolutely correct. And I think it's interesting because a lot of my high school friends have, the vast majority of them have gone to business school and they're all either consultants or they're working for PE or VC firms. And it's just like, what, what is the point? Uh, and their entire point is just to make money. It's like, but there's so many issues right now. Don't you want to do something greater? And they're like, but the paycheck is good. Uh, so in law school, I, my first year, I was dead set on being a prosecutor. I thought I was going to go after financial crimes because I saw <laughs> it. And I was going to correct it, you know, one man army. <laughs> Uh, and so this begins the story of me, uh, failing forward because <laughs> my, my first year, uh, the summer I had an externship at FINRA, which is the, the private version of the SEC. It's financed by the big banks as a self-regulator. And I got there and nothing was happening. I say, like, what is going on? And there were some big projects that, because of my background, I was included on the investigative team. And it, they either stalled out or we went after the really small fish just because that is all that we basically could do because we were constrained by resources and didn't want to make too big of a splash. So at, at the same time, there was a pretty big investigation into a certain tech company who filed an IPO uh, the, the summer before. And I w got to participate in that. And I was like, wow, this uh, legal tech stuff is pretty interesting. So my second semester, 
I or my second year, I went and delve into cybersecurity law and got a great course at the University of Maryland, go Terps. I took the cybersecurity class. I wrote a term paper about the need for information sharing from the public and private sector and sent this along to some people I've met at conferences and just people I knew around DC, got hooked up with a person in the national security sector who had worked for a federal agency. And he said, all right, I, I think you should look into this. And so that was in the spring. At the same time, I had an internship with the Maryland Attorney General's office. I was working as a clerk and I was brought in to do financial work, specifically mortgage-backed securities fraud, and ended up working on the state's complaint against one of the major credit rating agencies. So I worked for the state attorney general and the consumer protection division. And then in the summer, actually started an investigation into a virtual law firm who was committing consumer fraud throughout the state. From that, I spun out into a different investigation into a, a self-deleting messaging surface uh, that the state was looking into at the time, which was pretty interesting. So that got me into the legal enforcement side of tech law and policy. And during my 3L year, I, I went full in into politics. So I had used my connections and that term paper in the cybersecurity course, and I got a clerk position with the Speaker of the House of Maryland. And my focus with him was basically pushing through a cybersecurity grant uh, to provide access and funding for education programs for cybersecurity and cybersecurity businesses. So and what would you what would you say is the state of I guess awareness? Uh, I mean, you have you've done a lot of stuff with a lot of different politicians, local politicians. Do going back to where we started, do they know anything about technology? Are you sort of coming in and saying, "Hey, you could do mobile banking," and they don't even understand this? Like, where where are they at, and and how does that connect to to cybersecurity writ large? So, like most people, they are for the most part unaware and they don't use these services that they really should unless they have to. Uh, I, I've been shocked by the rise in the use of Signal over the past few months uh, just because they, they feel like these deleting messaging platforms are more protective and for, for their own information and help them in the long run. So getting back to your, your question, politicians are just like other people. They, they don't know the specifics. And so that's when they bring in specialists uh, like myself. And that's actually after law school, what I did was I worked as a chief of staff uh, to a Maryland member of the house. And my focus was cybersecurity and uh, business development within the state, just because I had the technical background, the legal uh, background, and also the business background. So I could talk to these people 
about what they needed on all three of those fronts. Uh, How does that translate to what you're working on today? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So during my work for this member of the House, I was at a conference and just met a member of DOJ. He's like, hey, I think that there's some really interesting opportunities for you in the federal government. And I said, really? Uh, I'm, I'm also working just on a side project. Uh, the ABA uh, published a book on business use of social media. And so I wrote two chapters of this book on cybersecurity and governance usage of social media by businesses. And he's like, oh, that's perfect because we see some stuff coming down the pipeline. And through him, through the connections that I made, uh, I, I went in in-house with the federal government. And did, now, you, did, did you have to put in an application through USA Jobs at some point? I, I did. <laughs> All right. is a nightmare. So anyone listening who's using any type of federal online application service, uh, I, I know you're paying, uh, but don't be discouraged. It actually does reach people. It's it's not just a black hole service. So do you have any specialized technical training or is this sort of information and expertise you've just picked up along the way? I don't have formal technical training. What I have done is I've gone out of my way, whether it be like Coursera courses, online platforms, or just sitting down with people and having them explain it to me. Like in 2013, I came across digital currencies, didn't really know too much about it, but was really interested and met a lady who actually runs one of the biggest uh, digital ledger technology. Please don't say blockchain. Don't say blockchain. No, 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 no. I I am avoiding the the buzzword of 2017 (laughs) because I don't want to go down that path. Uh, but I, I met with her and I was like, what is going on here? So we spent a few hours just like talking it through and she provided the basic technical components of what I needed to know. One of the things you wanted to talk about was data integrity. So the CIA, CIA triad who sits you down and explains this to you. And <laughs> how do you pick the I from the C and the A to be the thing that you're interested in? So the CIA triad, uh, for those who don't know, is the the big three in data data security, which is confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And I first picked this up in my cybersecurity class, and I really delved into it my third year. And I talked with people as I was working in the speaker's office about what the three really meant. And at, at the time... Confidentiality, data breaches, basically, uh, was the big thing. Like, how do you know that the data is only, you can only access it? Um, Whereas people were saying, actually, you might want to think about the other two because data breaches are big, but there's a lot of harm that can happen um, from integrity and access issues. And they were quickly proven as correct because that was also the time uh, that ransomware really started to be come on the scene. And that shows that cybersecurity is not just about protecting from data breaches, but 
the 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 bigger issues ddos attacks ransomware that was on the availability issue and then the integrity is what i focused on because there is so much harm that can happen to businesses or federal agencies or even uh people individually if the information they have is intentionally altered for a malicious malicious purpose and the best example of that from the past year or so was there has been a proven breach of the SEC's filing system called Edgar system in which bad actors from the Balkans went and changed a corporate's filing because they knew that this change would alter how the market would move on mm-hmm. its projections and basically they shorted the stock um, because they knew it would work in one direction and they they timed the move before the market did and they made tens of millions of dollars um, just because of this one false flag operation this is clearly happening in finance I can imagine that it would it's it's conceivable to happen in, in health it's conceivable right. that it could impact elections uh, and- are you are you ready to like is the is the building burning down, or should we panic? What's going? What what do we do to fix this situation? Uh, so to fix it, that's the million dollar question that we're all struggling with, and technologists and legal authorities are working together because it's not so easy as throwing up a new system to safeguard data internally or externally because there's a lot of legal regulations upon the usage and alteration of data, uh, which are only becoming more onerous. So the solution right now that I tell uh, people is back up your information because what you protect is what you can really trust. So you mentioned uh, elections, and I know that we wanted to sort of talk about that a little bit considering all the news that came out this week about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and... What else? <laughs> so um, talk to us a little bit about like election integrity and how that plays into this. Election integrity uh, from a data perspective is a tremendous concern. And as a knowledgeable observer, I'm a little distraught by the solutions that are being offered, which for those who are not tracking the legislation, senators and members of the House are, are saying, Let's just go back to paper ballots because we know paper ballots are trusted and they they are infallible, which I don't think a backward looking approach is really the, the fix. I think that people have to they can go to the, the digital and paper system if they want, but also just disconnect certain voting systems from networks and make sure that the voter database is sufficiently protected. So I have to channel CDT chief technologist Joe Hall, who would push back against you and say, paper ballots, paper ballots, paper ballots. (laughs) Um, And I guess I just, you know, we have a very decentralized election system, lots of different states, localities, municipalities, federal government, everybody has different standards. Um, I, I think I agree with you, right, that we should just be disconnecting these voting machines um, but how do you ensure that any of these officials have the wherewithal or knowledge to know how to do that? I mean, these machines are 
you know, what the, at DEFCON last year, right, at the voting village, they were tearing down these machines, and a lot of them had Chinese components, and it's really hard to verify the complete chain of custody. <laughs> and this is a basic, you know, security issue. Um, anyway, it's sort of just a prompt to throw back at you being like, you're sort of saying, well, we just disconnect stuff and do a mixture of things. Um, you know, where do we test that out? And is there money behind that? Like, So that's a real interesting thing. And getting to the macro level, the United States' voting system is so disconnected because we are 50 United States. <laughs> and the fact that there's no uniform voting system actually is a benefit from a security standpoint because right. it's so onerous to break into each uh, state and each county's voting system uh, that it, it would be incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive uh, for an actor or state actor to do so. Uh, but the best solution, as you kind of alluded to, Joe, is a, a federal funding program uh, that I know DHS has walked down that road of providing states information and funds for new systems because the problem that we're seeing recently is that states did purchase electric voting systems but they haven't updated it and they haven't really done anything to maintain the security protocols of their voting systems they're they're just like well we have this great screen so we're good to go forever but that's uh, which, why i think uh that's why I think that the shift is, especially in light of the Cambridge Analytica news this week, has shifted from security to data and talking about, you know, creating these, you know, taking, you know, uh, this information from Facebook and creating these so-called psychological voter profiles, right? So, I mean, data, I, you know, I read this uh, article in The Econ Economist a few months back that data is now more valuable than oil. And this is true because you're seeing it in terms of like the consequences of like, a, you know, an actual election and taking um, just information and creating these little, these little profiles about people and, and appealing to their, uh, you know, to their, their psyche or whatever, you know? So it's like, how do you, I mean, how do you, um, protect the data? I think that's what we're, re what we're really focusing on. It's, it's interesting for me to see the shift then. I mean, obviously the security issue is always going to be there, but the data issue I think is a much newer one. And I think personally a more interesting one. Oh, me too. And I think that the Cambridge Analytica Facebook thing goes beyond just election securities to data security overall. And yeah, for the past couple of years, the big phrase has been data is the new oil. But the, the thing I like to think about actually came out of the Equifax hearing. And I think it was uh, Senator Ron Wyden said that data is no longer the next oil. It's now the next toxic waste. <laughs> because with all the information that companies are collecting, they right. now have to be responsible for uh, ownership and maintaining this and just throwing it out there and selling it to the highest bidder, I don't think is going to be tolerated forever. Mm -hmm. And now companies have to think about responsibility with the data. How should they share it? How should they use it? How long do they retain it? Because there hasn't been this thought for, for so long. They've just been at the buffet bar piling on their plates and, now they're overweight and have to get back into shape. And I think that's 
when as a, like federal public policy regulators can come in and say like all right you can do this you should do this um and oversight is necessary and appropriate at junctures like this it, it's it seems to me that it's all sort of bad news and we're all sort of throwing <laughs> things at a, at, a, at, a wall, at a wall to see what sticks um, no 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 uh, <laughs> i i don't take or subscribe to that defeatist approach i mean <laughs> we're recording this on saturday uh when there is literally the march on washington for gun violence about to occur because i think people have well, for preventing gun violence, let's be clear. <laughs> well, so, very good point. Uh, for preventing gun violence, just because for so long Americans and people have accepted the status quo and have accepted mm-hmm. powerlessness, it's it's no longer just about all or nothing. It's it's about protecting people and whether it be from gun violence or data insecurity, things have to change. And I think people of our generation and younger aren't going to sit back and just say, well, that's how it is, so whatever. So where where does the where is the foundry see opportunities? Where does it see gaps? I mean, the three of us are basically quasi privacy professionals. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the foundry who are privacy people. Um, I would, you know, the which makes sense. Privacy is a big issue we've been talking about for most of this episode in the guise of security. Um, but it's only one component of a huge range of tech issues. Um, you and I both have, I guess, quasi-rural backgrounds, but the foundry is basically bi-coastal, San Francisco and D.C. Um, so where do you see things moving and where do you want to what do you want to bolster up? What do you we need, what do we all need to do better at? So the foundry is not bi-coastal. We actually have fellows throughout the country. And it's- how many? Right. I mean, it's concentrated on the coast, right? But it is. We do have people scattered throughout, but I mean, we, we, I mean, we've talked about this on previous episodes where the reality is the vast majority of things that are happening in the country are happening on the coast. Um, and th- I mean, that's not necessarily to say that that's a good thing. We should keep it that way. We obviously should try to like, speaking of the digital divide, try to, you know, let it permeate. Um, but that's, th- that's just the current reality. It is, and we are largely bicoastal because that is where our networks are. <laughs> but um, what we want to do to grow the foundry is to expand those networks and get people in Austin, Texas, or in Seattle, Washington, or in Canada, or in London, um, where wherever they are, and get that connected to the thought leaders that we have in the foundry and expand out in that way because the only way we're actually going to reach these solutions is to have the most input and the most perspective rather than just having um, the solutions that we think are correct from our very narrow perspective. Uh, We would have a, a wider scope and having people with those diverse outlooks. If you're in Indiana, and listening to this podcast, apply to be a fellow. When does that? When does when, is that open now? When when should people apply? Applications are on a rolling basis. Uh, the new fellow class will not be selected until 2019, uh, but we will be active and we will reach out to you uh, as soon as we have your application uh, to get you involved. 
even if you're not selected, uh, because we want people to participate in whatever form they want. We're an inclusive group, not an exclusive cabal. There, there's a professional component of the foundry, but also a personal component. And uh, a big thing that I've been doing uh, and that the executive team has really focused on is getting more personal relationship uh, development in terms of happy hours and people <laughs> going out uh, for interesting talks. Uh, that you can never go wrong with happy hours. Hey, uh, that's that's when the real conversation begins. <laughs> if people are interested in connecting with me or learning more about the Foundry, please reach out to me directly. Um, my email address is patrick.f.kiosk.kyhos at gmail. Uh, and I will get back to you. No Twitter. Uh, no Twitter. I am completely disconnected from social media because... <laughs> I know what they're doing with the data and don't want that uh, to, I, I don't want to be another person in, in, in part of their mining efforts. This has been another episode of Tech Policy Grind, the podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of tech law and policy professionals working in privacy, cybersecurity, intellectual property, and a bit of blockchain. If you like what you've just heard, it would be a huge help to us if you'd head over to iTunes or your podcast platform of choice and leave a rating and review. You can follow us on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind, and please look forward to new episodes twice a month on Alternating Mondays. Thanks to Ali Sternberg for the music, and until next time, keep grinding.